This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, with the COVID pandemic the war in Ukraine, and of course, the financial crisis that is haunting the Western world, inflation, uh, cost of living, nightmares for people without even people who are working in good jobs. The really most important issue in our world is climate change. The effect that it will have on future generations, that is uh, the dangers that are growing all the time, commitments that are being made and not being honored. And it really is wrong, foolish, that we don't talk enough about it. And it's a pleasure to welcome to the stand today, John Gibbons, who is a campaigning journalist on the environment. He uh, contributes to the Irish Examiner and to the Sunday Business Post, and he is one of the most informed people in Europe, I guess, but certainly in Ireland, about what is happening. John, thank you very much for joining us. I noted recently that in the last few days, in fact, people talking about Ireland's great resource, which is underused, that is our offshore wind. And there was talk in the past that offshore wind for us would be like oil for the Saudis and others in the Middle East. But it doesn't appear to be working out that way. I note that Joe Biden in the United States, his administration has given the most, the world's most generous package of climate incentives, uh, worth a total of 370 billion in green subsidies. And yet Europe hasn't moved with any great speed, it seems. And we have Green Party in government. The Germans have a Green Party in government. So what's happening? Is it these other major threats and events such as the COVID pandemic and indeed the, the war in Ukraine? Are they just crowding out the news space and making us forget what for young people in particular, but for all of us, is a deadly threat? I think um, it's probably fair to say that the the, the space, if you like, uh, in the in the public consciousness for the climate and biodiversity emergencies, that space has 
contracted really. It opened up probably quite dramatically, I mean, if you remember back in 2019 uh, with the Fridays for Future movements, the, the children's strike led by Greta Thunberg. Uh, in Dublin, for example, we had tens of thousands of people on the streets. Uh, it, it really caused political ripples. I think the media probably, in for as long as I'm uh, observing this, it was the first time that the Irish media really engaged with it as, a, as an issue. And, and it was beginning to gather momentum. There was, you know, serious action on the streets in September 2019. And then by rotten luck, uh, February, March 2020, obviously we go into COVID lockdown. Uh, which meant, for example, street protests, etc. They were all uh, switched off. So I think that really drained the energy away. And I suppose for me, the, what was most symptomatic of that was, for example, that RTE's solitary environmental reporter, uh, science and environment reporter at that time, was reassigned, Eamon, from from the environment beat completely and yes. moved 100% to covering COVID. And that was a decision not made by the individual in question, but by his... Uh, line managers and, and his bosses, they literally said, there's nothing, we, 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 we just need everybody covering COVID. And the problem with that, of course, is the climate emergency hasn't gone away. And you might ask me, what's different in the world today, say, in 2023 versus the world in 2019? The main difference is we've added about another 150 billion tons of heat trapping gases in the last three years. We've basically turned up the ratchet on the global climate and it's beginning to express itself in all kinds of ways, in ways, if you like, that I think are even catching some of the scientists by surprise. I've seen report after report, Eamon, where the scientists are saying that the system is turning out to be more sensitive to heating than they thought. Because some of the skeptics, some of the deniers, if you like, have said, well, maybe the system is, isn't very responsive to CO2. Maybe when you reach a certain plateau, it begins to sort of level off. Unfortunately, that turns out to be wishful thinking. The system is highly responsive to CO2. And I was looking this up the other night, and from the year that I was born to 2022, in that relatively, well, relatively short period of time, yes. global CO2 concentrations, Eamon, have increased by over 30 in my lifetime. That means we've fundamentally changed the atmospheric chemistry of a planet in the length of time that I've been alive, which is a really, really frightening thing. And more than that, the rate of change is happening now much faster in the 2020s than it was in the 2010s, than it was in the 1990s, than it was in the 1980s. In other words, this is an exponential curve. We're pushing heat into a closed system at an incredibly rapid rate. And we see the evidence in these fires we see in California, but also in, in parts of Europe and the floods, the heat waves that are coming this year. It appears Europe will have heat waves that are unprecedented in Vietnam and in Asia. They have had heat waves that are unprecedented. Is it just ignorance? Uh, and also, I have to say that one of the Republican candidates for the presidency next year, Donald Trump, doesn't believe in climate change, but Ron DeSantis, who might be his main opponent, doesn't believe in it at all, and he's the governor of Florida. So there are some pretty heavy guns who are likely to wield political power, but they don't believe in it. 
Sure. I mean, reality denial is not is not a, a 21st century phenomenon. If you think of it, for much yeah. of our history, humans engaged in reality denial on an epic scale. In fact, I would almost argue, Eamon, that the last you know, 50 to 100 years is, is probably unusual in human history, where for a while, science and the understanding of reality, measurable, confirmable reality became the thing that guided how we did our business. That happened for a while. Unfortunately, the ideologues, the fundamentalists, the extremists have taken over again uh, in many places, including obviously they've completely hijacked the Republican Party. Once, And it's ironic to think, Eamon, that the Republican Party in the U.S., was once upon a time considered to be the party of science. And yes. it, it, I mean, for example, it was a Republican president, uh, Nixon in 1970, who formed the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, right? Yes. So yes. it is, it's a funny old thing. Unfortunately, in the meanwhile, for, for reasons that we, we could spend the rest of the, of the discussion, uh, teasing out, but we won't, uh, obviously there's been that, that tragic pull to the right. And I say tragic because this is a really terrible, moment in human history to be looking away from science and from reality and instead to be to be uh, if you like clinging on to fantasies and to ideology it's just such a bad time i mean for example uh, 2022 across europe now europe has fabulous instrumental uh, temperature records going back at least 500 years like really detailed records last summer those records were smashed for continental Europe. Now, the really scary thing, Eamon, about this isn't just that it happened last year. It's that last year was was in what's called a, a La Nina phase. In other words, globally, the Earth should be in a relatively cool phase because the, we go through these oscillations between La Nina's, cooler phases, and El Nino's, warmer phases. Now, you're not supposed to get these type of, of extreme heat waves that kill thousands of people during a La Nina event. And what's particularly concerning is that we have an El Nino event on the horizon expected to, to arrive probably by uh, mid to late 2023 and almost certainly in 2024. And the, the, the frightening thing to consider is that the enormous energy imbalance that we saw in 2022 and that we're seeing already in 2023 with, with records falling, I think you said already, uh, Laos, Vietnam, Botswana, yes. Spain, Bangladesh, Thailand, Canada, Costa Rica, Honduras. And that's what's critical to understand here. We've always had heat waves. We've always had droughts. We've always had extreme weather. Of course, what we're getting now is polycrisis. This is, this is where yes. we're getting these events happening simultaneously from literally from the Arctic to the Antarctic and everywhere in between. And again, for those paying attention, this is not a surprise. Now, 70% of the world's surface, of course, is covered by water. And scientists told us in recent weeks that the world's ocean surface temperatures have reached an all-time high. And one scientist commenting on this said that the, the results they're reading are, quote, off the charts, unquote. And the heat that's accumulating amen, in our oceans is now penetrating 2,000 meters down. Now, you know how much energy it takes to boil just a kettle of water. It yeah. gives you a sense of the gigantic energy imbalance that's building up in our oceans. In fact, were it not for the oceans absorbing that energy, uh, our atmosphere would already be unlivable. So it's really, really concerning. And essentially, as the oceans heat, obviously it's a crisis for marine life in the first instance, but it also means that, that the hotter oceans are the fuel for extreme weather events. They literally provide the engine for hurricanes, typhoons, etc. 
Yes, and it's ironic that England has just crowned a king, Charles III, who goes back 50 years maybe when he was accused of being a fool and a tree hugger uh, because he has always been a campaigner on the environment. And he, when he wanted to go to COP27, uh, Rishi Sunak stopped him going, stopped him attending. Now, that's just a little glimmer of the indifference, if you like, or, or the hostility even. But that someone with his record should be stopped from attending a conference. Absolutely. And, and of course, I mean, the, the, the presence of Charles there would have been a strong symbol uh, of, and again, he obviously holds no uh, executive power, but it would have been a strong symbol saying, we take this seriously, we recognize it. And you're, you're entirely right. I mean, Charles, for, for whether you like him or, or not, uh, he's been fairly consistent as a, as a, if you like, somebody who, who doesn't just speak out on the environmental issues, who actually understands them. Now, I'm, I'm no royalist, believe you me, but I, I will give him that. And it was a real slap in the mouth that he wasn't permitted to attend. But even worse than that, of course, was the fact that Sunak himself didn't attend. So yes. this was really the British government, unfortunately, engaging in that very thing I described earlier, reality denial. This idea that if we you know, like children, if we don't deal with this problem, it'll go away. And I can assure you, if there's one problem that doesn't go away by being ignored, it's the climate emergency. It's, it's like a, it's like a smoldering fire in the basement. You can smell the smoke, but if you decide to just put a peg on your nose and ignore it, only bad things will come. And unfortunately, that has been the political reaction in, in some quarters. Can you explain the Gulf Stream to me and our listeners and the significance of it? Um, if the Gulf Stream were to reverse, as I understand it, we'd have a new ice age in Europe. Okay, right. First of all, what, what we call the Gulf Stream, if you like, is it's part of a global system of uh, submarine uh, water movements. And, and, and it's very complex to, to explain why water rises and sinks. It has to do with salinity and heat. So in simple terms, at the equator, say at the tropics, uh, basically, there's a lot of evaporation. So the water there gets warm and salty. That causes it to sink. And as it sinks, it moves north in, in this gigantic ocean circulation. And the reason I say it's gigantic, Eamon, doesn't just sweep up around Western Europe or uh, Northwestern Europe. The same ocean circulation system also sweeps around Antarctica. And I might come back to that in a minute as well, because we have some uh, disturbing news about Antarctica. But leaving that aside, the energy transfer from the from the tropics basically it draws away hot water heated water from the tropics draws it up north and then deposits it if you like around the around the edge of northwestern europe and as you say the, the, to put i suppose to describe the scale of this energy transfer uh, somebody said it's it's the equivalent of what's called one petawatt of energy and one petawatt translates to a million one gigawatt power stations. So it's a massive energy transfer. And it's the reason why countries like Ireland, which are very far north, and this is the thing, if you look at an actual atlas, you'll realize that Ireland is on the same line of latitude as um, Newfoundland in Canada, or, or even some of the, some, it's actually, if, if Ireland were moved across on a straight line of latitude, we would be quite far north in Canada, and we'd expect to be frozen in about seven to eight months of the year. So, because of the Gulf Stream, we're not. What's worrying at the moment is we know that since the 1980s, the Gulf Stream has lost about 15% of its power. Now, 
the issue here is that it's already beginning to slow down. It's beginning to, that, that, en that engine is beginning to slow down. And that has manifested itself by what's called a cold blob. So if you look at a heat map of the Northern Hemisphere, you'll notice it's mostly orange and red as you see the temperatures rising. But there's this one area to the southeast of Greenland that is a blue blob. And that blob basically is an area of unusual, it's basically an area of coolness in a, in a yes. warming world. And that blob is a combination, Eamon, of the loss of heated water coming from um, the tropics and, of course, billions of tons of fresh cold water being dumped from the rapidly melting Greenland glacier right there. So that's having some really curious effects. And there was a report published by, I think it was the, the Marine Institute uh, in recent days, where they projected, and this is only projections, that um, we could have a situation because of a slowing of the Gulf Stream, uh, or the AMOC as it's also known, uh, this century, that Ireland's overall temperatures could actually decline, which is a, it's really difficult for people to get their heads around that because, you know, we're told, well, what about global warming? But the thing about global warming, of course, is that it's a global phenomenon, but within it, you get regional anomalies. Yes. And we're in this most unusual location on the, on the, on the, on the world map where we're close to this cold blob. And that could cause all kinds of, of interesting effects. But those who are hoping, Eamon, that if you like, the slowdown of the Gulf Stream will offset global warming and we'll end up in this happy equilibrium. <laughs> I'm afraid they're, they're dreaming. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, we have the Green Party in government. In Germany, the Green Party is also in government. It seems to me, uh, and I'm very interested in politics, that the green vote is generally a protest vote. It isn't people asserting their green desires or their 
green sensibility about what's happening in the world. It's actually an alternative to, in England, in the local elections last week, for example, the green vote was partly due to the fact there were conservatives who couldn't vote for their own party. They'd never vote for Labour. And it was between the, the Lib Dems and the Greens. And the Greens got a, a very significant vote. Now, we have a Green Party in government. How much can they do? And would you uh, agree with my assessment that the Green vote isn't a vote for environmentalists as much as it is a protest vote? Uh, first of all, I'm not sure, to be honest. Right. Uh, I, 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 I'm not sure I would accept the thesis. I mean, yeah. I, I would know, obviously, of people who vote Green because they're passionate about, for example, ecology. So they tend to look around and say, who's good on ecology? So in Ireland at the moment, if, if you're concerned about ecology, about biodiversity, you, you might vote Social Democrats these days. They're quite progressive. You might vote Green. Um, but it, it, it is fascinating, at least it is to me as well, that, you know, in the teeth of a climate emergency, it isn't how many people vote green that surprises me. It's how many people that don't vote green. That's what yes. really fascinates me. And this, to me, uh, suggests uh, this sort of, you know, duality of thinking where, on the one hand, you know, we must do something. Survey after survey says people are concerned and people want action. But the best way to get action on green issues is to vote for parties that have a strong green agenda, whether they're, yes. you know, the progressive wing of, of, of Sinn Féin, uh, there is such a thing on, on, on biodiversity and climate. They're not the dominant part of Sinn Féin, but they are there. Uh, you could vote for them. I think you can probably forget about Fine Gael, uh, unfortunately. Uh, you could certainly vote for the Labour Party if you're so inclined. You could vote for Sock Dems. You could vote for Greens. But strangely enough, when it comes down to it, despite the fact that surveys show this high level and really genuinely high level of public concern and anxiety, it doesn't translate into people's political choices. And, and that completely fascinates me because we seem to think there's a disconnect between our concern for the environment yes. and who we vote for. If you vote for, you know, politicians who either don't know or don't care about environment and climate issues, well, guess what? You get terrible policies. And this is exactly what we've had. And I understand, by the way, that it, voting is complex. You know, there's an old saying that people have to, to balance between the end of the month and the end of the world, right? And we yes. tend naturally to be focused on uh, the mortgage or the rent or, you know, jobs or childcare or all the things that are pressing right in front of us. And we as individuals can feel overwhelmed by whether it's bringing up a young family, whether it's, you know, a career, whatever the things, the pressures that we have to deal with. And most of us kind of, we mentally check out the big stuff. We sort of say, well, look, you know, the climate, that's way too big for me. That's beyond my pay grade. I'm going to leave that to the politicians. But unfortunately, yes. we don't give those politicians a mandate and we continue to vote, especially, I'm sorry to say, in rural Ireland for TDs who are, well, absolutely the exact opposite. These are regressives. These are, are climate regressives, people who seem to take pleasure in it. And, and I think that's a shame. And I also think I would like to believe it's a gross misrepresentation of many people in, in rural Ireland. But yet, I'm sorry to say, these candidates keep getting returned. Now, the people who should be most concerned, I, I hope you will agree, John, are young people, the young generation, Generation Z. They really, this is a big deal for them because they are likely in their lifetime to encounter something much worse than I have ever encountered. And I'm in my seventies. So 
Is there any sense or signs of awareness there? We know we see the Stop the Oil protests in Britain, which are disruptive, but they're a minority, a, a, a dedicated minority, and sometimes quite unpleasant minority. Is there any sense that young people are exercised by this as much as they should be? I think, first of all, absolutely. We see this again in survey after survey. Particularly, we see a strong um, psychological impact of anxiety and so on on the young. And to me, that, that that's a worry <laughs> in every sense. And, and let me explain what I mean, Eamon. You know, I've got a couple of uh, teenagers in the house here and they have a lot going on. They've got exams, yes. they've got friendships, they've got puberty, they have all that tough stuff of growing yes. up, this whole thing. And then guess what? On top of that, you know, people like you and me say, well, come on, kids, get out and solve the climate crisis. Yeah, and yeah. honest to God, I'm, I'm, I feel, I sometimes I even feel guilty talking about climate when my kids are around. Because yes. I feel, Eamon, that it's my generation, your generation that yes. did the damage. And yet we're looking around saying, come on, kids, fix this. They, by the time these young people, today's kind of teenagers, young adults, by the time they're in positions of authority, the game is long over. Right. Now, and I think this is something, and I don't want to be, you know, too, too downbeat on this, but it's really important to stress. We're, you know, we're at five minutes to midnight. Right. In the Last Chance Cafe. And I know this has been said many times before, but I can't overemphasize. And, and you asked me, you know, what, what might change or who, who might change? And it is something that has, that has really challenged people like me who've been following this for many, many years. What would, what would, what might happen to, to cause some kind of shift in, in how we think? Now, one thing that may happen this decade, and I, I hope I'm wrong. But I, I'm going to, if you'll allow me a moment to speculate. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Last year in the Indian subcontinent into Pakistan, temperatures, which are a combination of, of, of um, what's called wet bulb temperatures, it's a combination of absolute temperature and humidity. When they reach a certain critical level, mammals die. Now, what right. I mean by mammals die is everything mammalian dies. Now, whether even if you're sitting in the shade with a glass of water, you reach these temperatures that unless you have access to air conditioning, you die. Now, we are getting critically close. And if you throw an El Nino on top of this, my fear is that some year this decade, Eamon, not in the 2030s, this decade, we're going to have a mass fatality event, probably uh, in, in uh, East Asia. That is going to kill tens of millions of people. Now, you know, I'm sure you've listeners who'll be saying to me that that sounds alarmist rubbish, but this, we are so close to this. The thresholds that we approached within a couple of degrees last, uh, early last summer of people did die, but they, they came close, for example, to the electrical grid collapsing, which means that even the air conditioning systems would fail. Right. Yeah. When you say El Nino, what's that? What is that? Well, basically there's a global cycle. If you like, uh, and these are this is a part of the natural uh, climate cycle of, of El Niños and La Niñas. And basically, El Niño, by the way, what it means, it's from the Spanish word for the a little boy. Which and the reason it's called that is it's it's like a naughty boy. And in other yeah. words, it's unpredictable. El Niño basically means an upwelling of heat from the sea 
and it, it warms the sea, the sea surface. And what that does is during an El Nino cycle, and this happens, I think it's in the, in the, in the Pacific region, uh, you get water, you basically, you've got heat being exchanged between the atmosphere and the oceans all the time. During an El Nino event, the oceans, if you like, dump heat energy into the atmosphere. During a La Nina, it's more or less reversed. Now, there may be meteorologists listening to us saying that's a gross oversimplification, but roughly that's it. But an El Nino, from, for practical purposes, it means the world, the atmosphere of the world gets a bit warmer. Right. Uh, now, the problem is when you're sitting on top of an already superheated and overheated uh, atmosphere, that's the really worrying bit that we could easily see a situation where we temporarily pass the 1.5 degree threshold. We're already aiming hovering at about 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial, which is, yes. it's, that has taken us outside of any if you like, temperature, uh, if you like, scale that has occurred since the end of the last ice age. And what's important to stress here is that we've got a very full world. We've, we've got eight billion humans to feed. We yes. have a very, if you like, we have a very efficient global agricultural system, but it's, it, it, it isn't very resilient. It's very efficient at producing a very limited number of crops under very limited conditions. If those conditions change even by a little bit, suddenly rice crops fail. And we've seen this, by the way, last summer, we had uh, crop failures across Europe because of extreme temperatures. And the really scary thing for Europe, and, and I mention Europe because we often kind of glaze over when we talk about climate change, because we assume it is Africa or Asia, somewhere far away. But yeah. Europe is actually heating at twice the rate of the global average. So Europe is is right in the front line for 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 extreme weather. We've seen, for example, the 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 um, Spain broke its all-time April heat record on the 27th of April last. Uh, it hit 38.8 degrees centigrade. It was, it was looking like it was going to break 40 degrees. The issue there, of course, is that Europe dried out last summer. They were expecting to recharge the, the reservoirs and the rivers over the winter, but it was a very dry winter. So they've come into the spring of 2023 with uh, rivers at record low levels, all over from the, from the Po uh, to the Rhine and, and so on. Also, the snowpack uh, in the in the Alps, uh, which they call the water towers of Europe, because it, it holds uh, winter precipitation and then releases it in spring, is at fifty percent of its normal levels. Which means that spring water that Europe depends on isn't going to happen. So we have a situation, Eamon, where our own continent is highly vulnerable yes. to climate change. And you asked me the question, I think, you know, what might change and how will this affect politics? I think this is much closer. Always the danger, the problem for, for folks like me trying to describe the climate emergency is it has always sounded like distant thunder. Yes. And people have always said, well, look, yeah, I hear you, John. I, I know what you mean. But look, at the moment, we have to deal with the housing crisis. We've got to deal with the, you know, the, the migration crisis. We have to deal with COVID. We've got to deal with Ukraine. And you're right. We have to deal with all of these things. But I often try to use the analogy of the climate issue is a bit like if you think of civilization being in a boat, okay? Uh, now, we have all these issues that we have to resolve on the boat, but the climate crisis is the equivalent of a huge hole in the boat. Yes. If we fail to fix that hole, then all the other things that you care about, whether it's labor rights or feminism or uh, migrant rights or anything else that you care about, all of them will count for nothing if the climate system fails. And, and at the moment, this is the really surreal thing to be saying this. 
the climate system is breaking down. It is, it is getting close to a point where it will simply cease to function in a way that is of any use to humans uh, and our very fragile, very, um, overstretched agricultural systems, which depend on reliable rainfall. They depend on fertile soils. They depend on so many things going right. And yet we, we stand so close, Eamon, to the cusp of these things breaking down. And if you cast your mind back to 2018, we had a fodder crisis in Ireland in 2018, a very severe fodder crisis. Now, it was a combination of a, a very cold spring when the grass didn't grow, followed by a drought in the summer. Now, in any other country, if you like, in we had a situation where were we not able to import uh, thousands of tons of fodder, we would have had to basically cull hundreds of thousands of animals would have been killed. Now, yes. we, we got away with it because we, there were other parts of the world that didn't have such an extreme drought and we were able to import. Now, what happens the next time we get a drought like that and we go to, we, we ask the French for fodder and they say, you got to be kidding me. We have a drought. We ask the Spanish, yes. they say, we have a drought. And what happens if we can't? And this is where these systems that we take for granted, they begin to unravel. And you find, in fact, we've always on the assumption in Ireland that somebody else will fix it, whether it's our defense or our uh, things that we import. We have this idea here that you know, if we click our fingers, we can get stuff that we need from somewhere else. And as a result of that, we have an incredible lack of domestic food resilience. And it's something I'd love to talk to you about another day, maybe, is, you know, I think it should be a national emergency program, as it was, Eamon, during the Second World War, when the, the key thing in Ireland was, how do we feed our population based on our resources on this island? And we've yes. completely forgotten that vital lesson. And in fact, at the moment, our, our food model is going further and further away from, from national food security and more and more into, if you like, shipping things off to arcane distant markets. Okay, John, uh, as always, fascinating, uh, if not a little troubling uh, to hear from you. Thank you very much for joining us. John Gibbons uh, writes for the Irish Examiner and uh, the Sunday Business Post and has been a dedicated campaigner on this subject for a very long time we're grateful to John to all of you for listening that's all we have time for now we'll talk to you soon planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.